Today I welcome Juan Leclerc, General Manager of Engineering Services at the City of Vancouver. Juan has been working at the city for 25 years where he started off as a transportation engineer in 1997. Mr. Leclerc has a unique mix of formal education with a bachelor's degree in engineering from Concordia University and even more impressive from the University of Calgary is a master's in engineering with a specialization in transportation and structures. Vancouverites have in indirectly benefited from Lon's travels to other major cities around the world, bringing back with him new and fresh ideas of how to make our municipality a more thriving, livable city. He sits on the Vancouver leadership team and has had his stamp on a number of projects, which include the Millennium Line, Canada Line, Downtown Transportation Plan, and of course, the 2010 Winter Olympics. While working his way up at City Hall, Lon has co-managed the 2012 update to the city's transportation plan and in 2015, he led projects such as the Arbutus Greenway and the seismic upgrades for the Burrard Street Bridge. Juan's reputation as a collaborative manager has worked well in overseeing a portfolio that touches all civic departments and, of course, Vancouver's 22 unique and distinct neighborhoods. Juan, thanks for being on Coastal Front. Thanks for having me. Good. So before we start getting into those topics, I would like you to take a moment to... Um, Talk a little bit more, more about your title as General Manager of Engineering Services at the City of Vancouver and tie that in so the listeners and viewers understand how big engineering is under the city budget. Well, and uh, the title General Manager of Engineering Services is still relatively new. Uh, for the city's history, it's been called the City Engineer. Okay. Uh, and uh, when you think of cities... Um, they're the very creation of cities. Uh, in the Canadian context, there is no recognition of a municipality or a city. It doesn't exist in the Canadian constitution. Um, but municip but uh, municipalities have generally been created by the provinces. And the provinces do that to basically implement a way of delivering local services, which are primarily local streets, local water systems, sewer systems. Uh, and so in many respects, the, the, the reason the city was created was for that. In addition to that, the other big piece is uh, land use, managing land use. So then they don't have to get into that minutia in every location across the province. So they delegate that authority and that becomes the authority of the city. Okay. So I'd like to think that the city is largely engineering. And, uh, <laughs> and also in addition to that, like the, the um, uh, sanitation, uh, waste services, um, everything that you kind of need to kind of operate and live in a city is generally provided by the engineering department. Well, we can see from uh, the annual capital budget for the city of Vancouver, and a lot of listeners might be quite surprised to hear this because we always hear about how big the police budget is. And the police budget is a very large piece. I mean, it's it's 21% of, of, of the annual uh, expenditures of the city. Um, and by contrast, the fire department, for example, is 9%. Um, parks and recreation is 8%. Things like uh, uh, corporate support is 8%. Um, the mayor and council um, uh, and auditor general are 1%. And uh, utilities or engineering is a whopping 23%. Uh, you have a annual operating budget at the city of Vancouver, about $1.8 billion, of which the engineering part portion of that is $525 million. So it's a big number. Yeah, and uh, what's interesting about some of the numbers you mentioned there, utilities, 23%, but in fact, the public works is the piece, uh, which is another 6%. Um, that's generally the piece people think of. 
And, and I only say that because utilities, uh, if you look at the engineering operating budget, they make up 80% of the spend. Um, but those are generally the stuff that's out of sight. Those are the water pipes, the sewer pipes, you know, the, the landfill, uh, the district energy system. So it's not something you see. It's the 6% of, of the budget, which is actually the roads, the traffic signals, yeah. and the lighting, and that kind of thing. Well, for those viewers who are watching, they can see this graph we here have here. It's titled Engineering 2022 Budget, $525.9 million. And you said public works, for example, is 16% of that, or $84 million. So when you look at water in one form or another, either way through the form of wastewater or actual clean water, combined, it looks like under your budget, that's like 60, over 60% of what you spend your dollars on or you spend taxpayers' dollars on. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, like it and, makes sense. We've got a city with a lot of water around us. And, yeah, and uh, in fact, there's a new term we call one water. It's a way of kind of bringing all the waters together because there's the potable water, there's the rain water. Uh, and the, unfortunately, we use potable water for almost everything, even yeah. irrigation. When, right. of course, uh, if we did rain rainwater harvesting, we could actually use other things for it. And then on the, the wastewater side, there, again, there's the stormwater, which is generally considered cleaner because it's dropping from the sky and it's rain uh, and then there's the sanitary uh, system which is generally coming from you know dishwasher in your bathroom okay things like that yeah. so yeah. so there's a there's a number of different pieces to the whole water story and of course we're trying to bring them all together into one because um, you know have we have pressures on all fronts you know the extreme dry summers we're experiencing now yeah. have conservation become an issue and and the kind of rainwater harvesting kind of the intensity of rainfall causing our sewer pipes to be overwhelmed so there's a number of things that we do that actually tick a whole bunch of different boxes yeah yeah well we're going to get into this whole conversation about water it's quite fascinating and it's obviously for a lot of us who maybe not hearing this for the first time, realizing that it's actually a massive part of the city's budget. Um, before we do, let's maybe talk a little bit more about your, the history of Vancouver, uh, when we were incorporated, because uh, I know you're a bit of a, I get the sense you're a bit of a history buff. You, you mm -hmm. know a lot of the stuff. And uh, we also obviously have a new mayor and council coming in. And I don't know if that changes uh, kind of your plans or scope, but maybe you could talk a little bit about Vancouver's history, how it ties into our infrastructure, because I made as an introduction, our aging infrastructure, and and what you might see happening over the next uh, four four to eight years. Sure. Uh, so, the one thing that kind of strikes me when I moved to Vancouver, uh, I moved here during Expo '86. Uh, I got a job at the BC Pavilion. It was fun, fun, fun event uh, that was celebrating uh, Vancouver's birthday. A yeah. hundred years it was a wow. hundred years. Uh, a couple years later, I moved to Montreal to study my undergraduate degree, and they were celebrating 350 years. Wow. So just yeah. to, to kind of put <laughs> that in perspective, yeah. uh, this is a very young city, and a lot of it was built about the same time. And that's because we also don't include the new suburbs, which are kind of out, out there in the periphery. So starting from zero, in fact, uh, if I look at our oldest water pipes, they're 1900. Right. So that's kind of that it. are still in existence today. Yeah, we have some really old ones Yeah, wow. that are over 100 years old. We're supposed to replace them every 100 years. But if you can imagine up until 86, we didn't have pipes that were over 100 years old. I see. Correct. And okay, uh, yeah. whereas a city like Montreal uh, would have had many, many pipes that were 
way older. And so they had been in the renewal business for uh, quite some time, and they've just had to ramp it up and ramp it up. For a city like Vancouver, where generally our assets, especially the pipes, water and sewer pipes, last about 100 years, um, the, the renewal piece is, is now coming on big. Uh, because all of that was built out in those first decades uh, of the 1900s, you know, up until around the 1950s and 1960s. So everything that we, you know, we have in the city is unfortunately a similar age. (laughs) And so now the consequence of that for us is renewal starting to be a a big thing is going to become a bigger and bigger thing for many decades to come. For many decades. I mean, that's a really think important point for a listener to understand. We're not talking about something that runs on a political cycle of say three or four or four years. I mean, we're talking many decades. Yeah. When you have, uh, say 20% of the city that was built out over one decade, for example, that's, that's a lot. And, uh, the nice steady state for new for, for renewal where most cities would want to be is replacing you know one or two percent of the system every year yeah. and of course if your system was you know built incrementally with one percent of it every year then that would be an easy task yeah. um, but the difficult task that we have is that a whole bunch of pipes are going to become aging at the same time which means that uh, water main breaks and f- sewer pipe failures are actually going to become more and more frequent wow. even though we're spending a lot more time and attention to replace them can see the headlines now. Um, so that's really helpful insight on, on what the picture looks like today. Uh, is it fair to say then if I go and take this glass of water, if I'm in some random one of the 22 neighborhoods in Vancouver, good, pretty good chance that at some point this water ran through a 70, 80 year old pipe in order to get into my glass? Yep, very good okay. chance. Yep. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Same pipe that my grandparents were probably drinking from. Yeah. Um, are there any neighborhoods in particular that need more attention than others? Uh, well, I would say the, the, the biggest pressures that we're feeling right now are related to the climate change ones. Okay. So uh, sewer and drain, sewage and drainage systems, of course, require us to convey that water away from the neighborhood. Uh, but we do have uh, kind of two things happening. One is sea level rise. Uh, that's affecting our waterfronts. Um, you know, at, at uh, over by Jericho Locarno, yeah. uh, it was actually all very flat, and the first home, homes were actually quite flat. And we do annual temporary sandbagging and diking there, um, but also the uh, rainfall intensity. So that 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 ends up hitting a few neighborhoods, uh, particularly hard where their pipes are undersized, and so the water uh, ends up. Um, through overland flow, pooling in areas, causing you know potentially property damage in that way. Right. So okay. those are generally the low-lying areas yeah. uh, across the city that are the biggest challenge, and are going to have to be uh, the focus in the first couple decades for sure. Okay. Okay. Well, within your budget under wastewater or sewage, um, being that it represents thirty-two percent of this five hundred twenty-five um, million dollar annual budget for for engineering, and then and then. Clean water is another 30%. By contrast, public works is 16% and transportation is 15%. So within these groups of clean water, wastewater, public works, and transportation, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but what are the biggest expenses annually for these certain parts? Um, it sounds like wastewater is going to be pipe replacement. That's the- Yeah, the sewer system is by far the most expensive asset. The, the entire system is the most expensive asset in the city. Yeah. Uh, and replacing it, there's nothing cheap about it. The, um, the, the system generally works on uh, gravity. 
which means that the pipes um, have to have a certain slope, uh, not too much, not too little. Uh, and of course, the topography goes like this. Yeah. The size of the pipes tend to be large. And so when you're replacing them, it's a it's a big excavation. Mm-hmm. And there, there's just no way around it. Like yeah. there's no easy um, solution to our sewer system. I mean, we also have the audit, like, again, the, the period that we built out most of the city uh, was a period when uh, we used a combined uh, system. That's not what you see in most cities. Uh, most cities have separate uh, storm and sanitary, and across the region, that's what. So, you'd what see. do you mean by combined? We we combined our uh, uh, rain, uh, storm water, storm water, okay, and sanitary water into the same pipe, okay, and then it goes to the sewage treatment plant, okay. And, and that and when you say era, what was that era? What was it in the 1950s? Yeah, mostly? yeah. Okay. Up, up, I would say up until the 50s, yeah. uh, 50s and 60s, and then everyone started doing it differently. Then uh, devising a two-pipe system. And so, why, why did they change? Uh, mainly because they appreciated that the stormwater had the potential to overwhelm a sewage treatment plant. Okay. And the stormwater generally is cleaner water, which if you convey it to the receiving bodies untainted yeah. uh, with with sanitary sewage there's no, it's, it's almost like recreating the streams and uh, many of the cities say the north shore particularly good example uh, where they kept all the streams and so they divert the stormwater to the streams and the creeks and the rivers and it flows quite naturally to the ocean oh interesting uh, in the city of vancouver um for whatever reason, people thought it was a good idea to put all the stormwater into a pipe. So we almost okay. have no creeks left. We have very, two small ones here and there. It's like wow. in the one, three corners of the city. So all of our overland flow is conveyed into a combined sewer pipe. Okay. And that's a lot of water. That's a lot of water. <laughs> so and, what, kind of, uh, what kind of, I mean, it might be an obvious question, but what are some of the problems that this causes? Well, mainly it's capacity. And the thing is that, uh, again, if you look at, climate change it's changed our our assessment of what's needed by quite a, a large degree uh, typically anyone who lived in Vancouver in days gone by would know that winter is rainy but it's sort of a steady drizzle it yeah. was always a steady drizzle it's only this last um, you know decade or so uh, even less where rainfall intensity has changed and it comes really fast with really heavy flows yeah we saw that uh, was it February of this year across the province? Well, even this last weekend, yeah. uh, those were pretty intense yeah. rainfalls. And uh, we would have a curve. Atmospheric where we, rivers, I think they call it now. Yeah, the and new, they come up with yeah. the new name. It's yeah. like a river <laughs> falling from the sky. Yeah. <laughs> onto so it feels the, like. Yeah, well, yeah. and that's what it is practically. Uh, yeah, and so the, the way engineers kind of design systems is typically you don't design for the very worst event because that would have a very that would create a very expensive system. Right. So you kind of say, well, okay, there's a there's a storm that might happen once every say 100 years or okay. once every 500 years. We're not going to design for that. Yeah. Where it's cheaper for us to just let it fail and then kind of clean up the mess afterwards <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and just accept that once in a while you get those kind of crazy events. Yeah. Um, but when the one in 500 rainfall is happening every five years, now you have a different <laughs> right. scenario, right? And then you don't even know what to draw for the one in 500 uh, rainstorm. And so then so then what we have to do is we just have to take a different approach. And right. of course, two, two approaches for us is the kind of separating the sewer system. We're halfway through that. Yeah. So that's... Uh, 
50% of our city now has storm sewers and sanitary sewers. When did that start again? That was 1970s? Well, or? It's been, yeah, probably okay. around then. It's been under. And we're already for, 50% of the way there. Okay. And we use uh, renewal as the opportunity to do that as well. Yeah. So when, uh, when a pipe's old, we replace it with two pipes rather than one, okay. which, of course, means that renewal is a little bit more expensive in Vancouver than it is in other places. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, so... Um, yeah, I was going to ask you a question, sorry, uh, about the size, because you made reference to the size of these pipes. And uh, I recently was driving along, uh, I guess it was King Ed, West King Edward, uh, kind of heading east after Burrard Street, and uh, there's a bunch of construction with... And there's these pipes that I like. Literally, you and I could stand inside. That's correct. Yeah. Is, is that what we're dealing with here? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a big one on uh, Canby Street that's being relocated right now for the new subway, uh-huh. uh, the Broadway subway, and the station connection at the Canada Line, and it's it's that big. You could easily walk through it. But the the bigger ones that that conveys to an even bigger one, which is across town Interceptor, which then conveys to an even bigger one, which pumps it over the city uh, uh, under Highbury Street all the way to Iona treatment plant. Now, those ones you could drive trucks through. Really? Yeah. They don't get full, though, do they? Yeah, they, yeah. They actually get, like, they get (laughs) full? Well, we don't want them to. Okay. Uh, In (laughs) fact, uh, what happens with a combined sewer system like ours, it's designed to not fail in a catastrophic way. So when it fails, it fails in a a managed way. And unfortunately, with the way that fails it 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 actually just there's there's points across the city where it just overflows into the ocean okay so we got too much flow it can't all go to the treatment plant the storm water is too much it's mixed with all the the sanitary yeah uh and it's going to go out a pipe straight out into english bay or straight out into broad inlet and that's called a combined sewer overflow yeah so that's just a valve that says systems failing rather than flood a bunch of houses right we're just going to let it just go out but it will go out untreated yeah yeah john john um Cooper, who was originally running as one of the mayoral candidates, when we interviewed him, we ended up, never got a chance to release his, his interview because he stepped down as a mayoral candidate. But he talked in our interview exactly about this. And mm. I was shocked to find out that we had untreated wastewater going strict directly into places like English Bay. Typically not during dry weather uh, yeah, because yeah, the sure. system isn't overwhelmed. Yeah. Uh, it's only during really ha- big storm events, yes, yeah. uh, which are just happening more and more frequently. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, those are the times that people are generally not at the beach either, yeah. which is good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> or out swimming. Yeah. yeah. So wastewater is a big, big component of the city's annual spend and, and part of your portfolio but the other part the other side of the water is the what you refer to as potable water clean water um one of the things that i'm always perplexed by is this uh uh the 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 limited number of water fountains we have in the city is there a position by the city of vancouver uh is there a strategy in place talking about climate change heat domes you know summertime we've got these cooling centers that are being created but to me it seems like an obvious win would be just to build more uh, simple water fountains. It also would avoid people having to like go and buy bottles of plastic, you know, plastic bottles of water. Yep. Um, can you fill me a little bit on that uh, strategy? Uh, yeah. So that's that's gotten a lot of attention, certainly by our council, and so they've directed us to kind of ramp up in that activity. And uh, right now on streets, uh, I think we have sixty drinking fountains on the street. We're looking to add another thirty in the next four-year plan. Uh, we but we also deploy. A little bit more strategically every summer when the weather 
gets particularly hot or is it, we get into a dry spell, uh, where we can put out a whole bunch of temporary ones. So we yeah, put I've seen out, those uh, yeah. yeah, we put out um, like usually ten to fifteen drinking fountains, uh, water refill stations. During COVID, we put out hand washing stations. I think we had about ten of those out, uh, and then another. Uh, 10 to 15 what we call misting stations yeah. and so a misting station is just you're, you're feeling particularly hot and you just need to kind of cool down yeah. so those are uh, deployable and the nice thing about deploying them is that during winter they're not really needed yes. and so we can kind of easily decommission them and kind of just get okay. back to a winter condition yeah. Where are you get, getting that water from? I think, the, are they connected to like uh, fire hydrants or what, what are they? The, the, uh, the yeah, portable the, ones? Yeah, the portable ones. We yeah. just connect to our fire hydrants. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Can you give uh, listeners and viewers an idea of like, where does our drinking water come from? I, I, sure. I believe that the answer is the Capilano Reserve there, but I don't know. Well, we have three reservoirs on the North Shore. Okay. Uh, this region's quite lucky that way because uh, it's very local. It's not very far away and it doesn't need to be pumped. Um, but it's the Capilano Lake, uh, Seymour and Coquitlam. And, oh, and Coquitlam uh, as well. Yeah. Okay. Coquitlam's the biggest one, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And it... Uh, it is got it's so big that is it is kind of the long term additional capacity should we need it. Uh, they would just need to to to, to connect another pipe okay. uh, to Coquitlam. Unfortunately, it's, it's a long of, ways. Well, not if you live in Coquitlam. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, so a lot of the regions close to it, and the way this, the yeah, system works is that all these three reservoirs right now pressurize a, a regional network. Okay. Uh, and of course, it's 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 actually hard to necessarily know where you're getting getting your water from. Oh, okay. Because if they're not using as much water from one of the reservoirs, say Capilano's getting low, uh, you might receive more water from Coquitlam. Okay. Uh, in the olden days, before they brought in the filtration plants on the North Shore, uh, when there was a localized slide and the, they would create turbidity in the water, they would kind of ratchet back from those because so that we get more clean water from the other sources. Yeah. I never realized that there's three different sources and there's a lot of residents. I mean, this is not just Vancouver we're talking about here. We're talking all of Metro Vancouver. Yeah. Just for listeners to understand, I mean, your your area uh, of responsibility is Vancouver proper. Yeah. But you must have to be coordinating with the other municipalities and maybe through Metro Vancouver. That's right. So with Metro Vancouver, uh, they're the ones that manage the reservoirs and the okay. treatment plants. Okay. And they manage the the trunk, the the large regional trunk lines that serve those. So uh, they they have a few big water pipes that come across Vancouver uh, to serve uh, Richmond uh, and to serve Vancouver from from Capilano. Uh, and then they have the the big sewer pipes that actually convey to the treatment plants. So we connect into their system, uh, and collectively we we fund those those services. I see. Okay. I had just a, yeah. just a, in terms of the water system, yeah. my, my water design engineer had a fun fact for me. She had asked this question, um, how many water pumps are there in Vancouver? And I'm thinking, I don't know, is it a... Water pumps? Yeah, because we have, uh, you know, the sewer system, it always wants to flow downhill until we need it to go uphill to go over this thing. Then we have to pump it, right? Yeah. And so, um, and most cities have lots and lots of pumps. Yeah. Uh, and, but uh, anyways, the, the answer for the water system is none. So, yeah. so because the water, the reservoirs are so high, they create a pressure head, which is actually so significant that it can even fill our reservoir at Little Mountain. 
which is you know the highest point in Vancouver. Really? So it fills it. And then we kind of just the whole system stays pressurized. And what we have to do is the opposite. Uh, we have to reduce the pressure. Really? So, yeah. Wow. So we have pressure reducing valves uh, throughout the city so that the water doesn't come through with so much force that it wrecks your fixtures. <laughs> That's amazing. So, yeah. Wow. So Little Mountain, that that's a reservoir up there. And I think there's one at UBC as well. It was probably outside of your, because that's part yeah, of Yeah, it's UBC. outside my area. Yeah, yeah. your area. But when you see those kind of like big concrete blocks. Yeah. That, that's a reservoir inside, right? Yeah, it's, it's gigantic. Yeah, it, it's very big. But is, does the water then go from, from the lakes through these pipes and then into those reservoirs and then dispersed from there? Yeah, so the way it works is because uh, when demand is high, it's drawing down on everything. That's yes. when the reservoir is being used. I see. When demand is low, the reservoir fills up. Okay. So again, uh, we don't want anyone to experience low pressure in portions of the city that are further away from the source. And so uh, if there's a lot of demand on the system, then yeah, the, it just tops up the pressure. Okay. So okay. it's kind of a, so it generally fills up at night, you know, and gets drained, lowers in the day. Yeah. Now, being that the clean water is, is only 2% less, it's still 30% of your budget. And it sounds like a big part of your budget for the sewer wastewater is just pipe replacement. Is that also the reason why so much money is being spent on clean water? Or where's the money being spent on the clean water? It's pipe replacement. Yeah. Pipe, pipe replacement yeah, as well. So, and um, it's the same thing. The, the water system, the clean water system is just a lot simpler. Okay. And uh, and it's easier to replace. The pipes are smaller. The system's pressurized. Yeah. Um, because it's pressurized, it, it doesn't have to be deep. Okay. It can go up and over hills. It doesn't right. matter. It can all we need to for it to be is enough below the street that it's not going to freeze. Okay. So you know that's really only a foot or two. Like it, you just you know that protects it from other you know activities that might happen on the surface, like us resurfacing the road yeah. and things like that, and prevents the water from um, experiencing cold temperatures. Okay. Yeah. So if some sewer pipes are as big as like being able to drive a truck through them, by contrast, how big is a main um, water, clean water uh, pipe? Well, the biggest one that we've ever replaced, uh, what is it? It's almost a meter across. Okay, yeah. so quite quite a bit and smaller. That's, than, that's, yeah. that's coming right from Stanley Park, connecting into the regional system right up Harrow. So yeah. anyone who lives on Harrow would have experienced that for the last couple of years. But that's an unusually large water pipe. Uh, okay. Just uh, typically, um, you know, not much more than the dimension of your hand, right? Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. So is, is it fair to say then that if the pipes are smaller, easier to work with, simpler system, is that system being, would the average age of our clean water piping system be quite a bit um, newer than our older one? No, it's all the same. Oh, oh really? Yeah. Okay. So the age of the pipes is typically the age of that neighborhood when it was built. Okay. So, you know, South Camby would have been the 50s or 60s. And then the, the newest neighborhood would have been uh, in the southeast at Champlain Heights, you know, in the 70s. I guess, oh, I see. Oh, 60s wow. Or okay. 70s. Right. So the downtown is also relatively new, kind of like you, you can imagine it all just kind of grew away from that epicenter there. Yeah. Um, but, um, we've already gone through the exercise of fully separating the sewer system in the, in the downtown. It's just because of development pressures. So sometimes development pressures will trigger an upgrade before the pipe is old. Yeah. And, and that, that happens across, across our city as well. Let's jump to bridges. Now I'm a commuter coming from Point Grey to downtown. 
take the Broward Street Bridge, sometimes takes the Granville Street Bridge, depending on which one seems to be having more work done on it. But uh, it seems like a lot of the work's been done. The Broward Street Bridge has got this beautiful new structure now. And it seems like where most of the work's been done. Uh, but fill us in, because I know when we were talking before we uh, came to, 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 to conversation today, you were telling me a lot of the work has been done underneath the bridges. Is that right? Yeah, the, the work on maintaining bridges feels like it's never done. Okay. It's never done. <laughs> and uh, and the, the challenge is that not only do you have the aging, infrastructure, the, the, the structure itself, which often needs maintenance, and we just did some maintenance on, on Burrard for sure, and we're in the in the process of uh, doing rather significant maintenance on, on the, the gravel bridge. Um, it, it's really, it's unique to the bridges themselves, uh, Canby Bridge is the newest one, but it has seismic vulnerability that wasn't understood at the time when it was built. Okay. And again, seismic codes change uh, as we learn more. And yeah. so that's why seismic upgrades are always ever always going to keep happening because right. you know we we discover some 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 other yeah. piece of information. Um, but the the scale of the work again, Granville's a good example. Um, we've replaced the expansion joints on the top. The most of that bridge is a steel truss structure, okay. uh, which is um, you know protected from rusting using a coating, right? People yeah. people might call it paint, but we call it a coating. Let's okay. say, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it's due for replacement. And uh, you know if we don't replace it, what ends up happening is that the the rust starts like the rust sets in, and then we start to have structural failure. So we have some urgent. It's not a good term to use when it comes to bridges. No structural yeah. <laughs> failure. <laughs> no, so we're we're working on that right now. We're doing the most urgent sections of the Granville Bridge, okay. uh, and um, they it's involves scraping off the old coating. Uh, doing structural repair where rust has taken a toll and we've lost rivets or we've lost connections and actually doing structural repair and then kind of recoding it. And uh, that simple task, it's a big structure. We have it segmented. It will take decades. Decades. Wow. But most Uh, of that work's being done underneath the bridge. Oh, yeah. So people won't experience it. Well, you'll experience it if you live under the bridge. Right. So (laughs) Granville Island or you'll see it from below, but you wouldn't see it from above. Yeah. Yeah. What? These projects are amazing. Can can you give listeners a context of how old are these bridges? Well, the Broad Bridge was built in 38. Uh, Granville was 50, 51. 53 yeah it's in a couple of stages and then uh the canby bridge is in 83 yeah okay 82 83 yeah now it's it's obvious that those are three of vancouver's bridges but then you have knight street oak street and Lionsgate, but those go into other municipalities so where does that come into play yeah, so um, people think of those bridges as the big ones, but of course we have the viaducts, and if you, right. if you there's the Grandview overpass that connects to First Avenue. Right. If you Good know point. the Grandview cut, we have many, many bridges that cross the the Grandview cut. In total, the city of Vancouver alone has about 54 bridges. Oh, really? Yeah. So there's a <laughs> wow. lot of bridges, but of course you don't really think of them as big bridges because you think of the three or four that yeah. we have as big. Uh, I could already see trivia night with lawn yeah. <laughs> on Vancouver's like trivia night. This would be unbelievable. 54 bridges. I love this stuff. I'm you write. don't, you don't want to own bridges though, if you can avoid it, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but uh, the, the two bridges on the North to the North shore are both uh, owned and operated by the province. So Lionsgate and second arrows. I see. Uh, the, across the river, it's a, it's a smattering of ownership. So, the province owns the Oak Street Bridge, connects to their freeway. Uh, the Knight Street Bridge is owned by TransLink, 
Okay. Uh, that was a gift to them from the province. Okay. <laughs> nice gift. <laughs> and then uh, the Arthur Lang Bridge is owned by, yeah. uh, Arthur Lang's owned by the federal government. Okay. Oh, wow, so, really? Because it connects to the airport, and I guess yeah. they wanted to build a bridge, and yeah. so they own that bridge. Okay, so, so you're not responsible for those bridges? No. No. Of course, we're, we're responsible for the connections to it, and, yeah. and as soon as those bridges kind of touch down and kind of enter our city, then the road network is all city of Vancouver. Yeah, okay. I want to jump to streets now and lighting, uh, lights and streets. Um, uh, some residents in neighborhoods, uh, in some neighborhoods have noticed a bit of a, a purple glow coming from their Vancouver streetlights. Um, I've noticed in my own neighborhood, a few of these, uh, overhead lights that, that uh, light up our city streets in uh, the dark winters we have here in Vancouver. And they're very, very bright and, and, and not really yellowish anymore. They've got this kind of really bright and they look almost like LED. Can you fill us in on what's happening with city street light lights right now? Yeah, so we're uh, we're in the process of replacing all city street lights with LED. Um, we we used to do it uh, on a location by location specific basis based on uh, safety and security. Uh, and so often with lighting was poor, even with the traditional yellow lights, yeah. uh, we would come in and replace those lights because uh, LED does provide a whiter light. Okay. And the whiter light, you know, allows you to see color, you know, on people's clothing and things like that. Actually, for people's sense of security, it's better. Uh, okay. But we also notice that... Uh, that lighting also allows motorists to see pedestrians and cyclists and others better. Yeah. And so they're less likely to hit them. So it right. re actually results in, in reduction of collisions. Okay. But the, uh, so we had been doing it where we saw a benefit, like we almost do a business case of where we would install them. Uh, but now uh, they've come to a point where um, they, they save so much money, they're cost effective, and they actually have a long lifespan. So we've uh, basically determined we're better off just replacing them all. And then uh, we will, in operating savings, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to pay back the capital that it costs to do this big initiative, you know, both in terms of the, um, the power mm -hmm. that required to light lit them, which is a fraction. A fraction. Of, yeah. yeah. Uh, but also the maintenance, because they, they tend to not burn out. Yeah. And uh, replacing uh, uh, burnt out traffic lights is actually a big task of ours and it's kind of expensive because you have yeah. to go out there in a big truck and you know you, you, there's no there's no cheap easy way to do that so we've started it across the city um there's like twenty-two thousand of them that have to be replaced yeah uh we had supply chain issues so it's been happening a little bit slower than people wanted and yeah. some of the bias in particular downtown bias wanted it to happen faster because of the safety and security piece like just the the, the way that it will kind of improve the ambiance in the downtown um but we have had some issues with the the quality of the some of the lights that we're receiving yeah and uh the coating and so the, bright, the brightness the and the, the color lights. is actually yeah. something that is a problem that that needs to be fixed. Yeah. So, so those will be corrected. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, don't don't worry about those. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, they're under warranty, yeah. and so the manufacturer will will correct them, and then we'll get a we'll get a good light fixture that has good light rendition and has long lasting okay. life. So you were on a podcast with uh, Gordon Price uh, from Price Talks a few years ago, where you mostly talked about transportation in Vancouver. Um, you mentioned that the number of vehicles in Vancouver has actually declined over the last few decades, which I was really surprised to hear. Because um, I find that driving from point A to point B is taking longer. Mm -hmm. Fill us in on that one. Yeah, so we monitor the number of vehicles that enter the downtown, that cross the city boundaries. And we've done that for decades. Okay. So 
back to the 1950s. And you could see that uh, over, um, you know, most of that time, you saw traffic volumes were increasing pretty, pretty steadily, I guess, uh, up until about the 1990s. And that's when we started to see a decrease, especially in the late 90s. Uh, and it happened most significantly on the west side of the city. Uh, it was really, you could easily trigger it to uh, U-Pass at UBC. Okay. actually had a huge impact on traffic volumes on the west side of the city. We saw, you know, decreases, some as high as 30% on some of those arterials out there. Wow. Uh, and, and in the downtown, that was the other big change. We saw generally volumes drop to about 20% of their kind of peak Um and and another like and and there's certain triggers. And it's not because of population decline because we've been having population growth. This is, I guess, a a, a better, um, more well used. Well, public yeah, there's there's system. a couple of things that are at play yeah. um, in the downtown. One of the big things that happened was the population went from you know forty thousand to one hundred and twenty thousand. Okay, right. That what that does is it puts a lot more people within walking distance of work. In yeah. fact, we, I could I could track as the population increased faster than the jobs increased downtown. We actually saw fewer people needing to commute to downtown because wow. they were already downtown. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so they just had to yeah. kind of walk a little distance. But then we also had, you know, introducing um, the Expo line in 86, uh, West Coast Express in 94, and then the Canada line in 20, 2009. Uh, each of those moves delivered way more people into the downtown uh, and had a, uh, had a consequential reduction in traffic. Okay. In fact, uh, with the Canada Line, when that opened, because uh, the city operates a number of uh, parkades downtown, because we own Easy Park, yeah. we could see the cancellation of people, you know, who had monthly reserved parking or whatever. They're just coming in to cancel it, yeah. And because they were switched to the to dry, to dry, um, taking transit. to taking public. Transit. So we end up with yeah. more people downtown for sure uh, than we did many decades ago, but with less cars. Now we have a project that's being built right now along Broadway. Can I mean I think most people know about it for those that are not familiar. Can you walk us through what's being built right now? Yeah, so it's an extension of the Millennium Line, which currently if you know the Millennium Line kind of goes along Low Heat Highway largely through the suburbs. Uh it comes into Vancouver uh and then it terminates just near Clark uh Clark Drive uh, BCC uh, Vancouver Community College. So this would be an extension of that line. So it'd swing up to, to a stop at Emily Carr, swing up to Mount Pleasant, to stop at um, Main and Broadway, and then an intersection, a connection with Candleline at City Hall, uh, and then stops at um, uh, Granville and Arbutus, or, and Oak, uh, VGH. So six new stations, an extension will take that line uh, basically out to Arbutus. Arbutus. Arbutus and Broadway. Yeah. And I know a lot of people uh, are interested in seeing this go all the way out to UBC. You know, I think that um, being a longtime resident like yourself here in Vancouver, it, it kind of perplexed me that it took so long for us to get a dedicated train line from Vancouver International Airport to downtown. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the number of people that work and live in UBC and commute there daily. It's a huge number. I think yeah. it's something like over 40 or 60,000 people there now. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, it's a big number. So where are we at with getting this line completed all the way out to, to UBC? Well, I think the, the business case is very, very strong. In fact, yeah. the, this line is so busy, it 
you know, right now it's managed with buses, yeah. like buses on Broadway and on parallel arterials. Um, but that bus, the 99B line, is the busiest bus in Canada or the U.S. right now. Wow. It, uh, yeah. And when this line opens, uh, the projection is even though it's only six kilometers and six stations, uh, it'll actually carry more people than the Canada line. Really? Which is 19 kilometers. Wow. And, yeah, that's much, amazing. much bigger system. And, uh, and then at the terminus at Arbutus, uh, the consequence of the, the transfer there is actually really significant. Yeah. Um, it, we will be at capacity on opening day. And that's not good news, you know, because uh, that means west of Arbutus, the, the buses will be carrying as many people as they can, and the only option right. will be to stand in queue. Yeah. Um, but the expectation is that we can get going on that second phase so that hopefully, you know, it'll be under construction yeah. uh, when we kind of have an opening day. Yeah. So I got to assume that you've been deeply involved in this Broadway subway f for a while. Yeah. Before I took this job, I was a director of transportation and 20 years of my life was in transportation. Okay. And uh, this was the most important transportation project we yeah. could build, even before the Canada Line was built. It was really, it, yeah, it, yeah, it's always been a higher priority. Uh, Canada Line got some attention, I think, because of the Olympics yes, and the yeah. potential to kind of serve that event, yeah. uh, which was ulti ultimately also needed. Yeah, uh, for sure. But it, it sort of jumped the queue on this one. This, okay. one, this one's going to be very, very busy. Do you and know then, where we're at on that? Uh, well, the, we've heard from the province a commitment to complete the business case by the end of 2024. So this okay. line opens in 2025. Yeah. You know, uh, hopefully that's kind of step stepping right into like a construction procurement uh, yeah. phase. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's encouraging with the federal government with their permanent transit fund now. So there's there's some there's hopefully some momentum there to make that happen. Yeah. 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 Good. To wrap this up, I want to talk about a few fun facts. Because again, we had a chance to talk before this uh, today's filming, and I was just so fascinated with all the stuff that you've got. This, like I said, lawn trivia night in Vancouver. It's, this is great. So, let me start by asking you about the neighborhood energy utility. I'm sure most listeners have never heard of the the NEU. Mm -hmm. It represents uh, 7.6 million dollars on your annual budget. What is the neighborhood energy utility? Uh, what it is, it was created when we uh, were constructing the Olympic Village for the Olympics, and which is you know, still operating. And uh, the idea was to get as close to uh, you know, zero carbon emissions as possible. And one of the ways of doing that is to adopt a system that's actually widely in use in many places around the world, which is district energy. And uh, what we do is we, we, we have a, a heat pump uh, over top of our, one of our big sewer pipes and we extract the heat uh, from the sewer water and uh, and send it back to the homes. And so... <laughs> with, with their own sewer. But it's it's just yeah. the heat. We don't, just the heat, not yeah. Not the sewage, no. <laughs> yeah. So the, it's, a, like it's a transactional thing, right? Yeah, we yeah, transfer sure. the heat uh, to wow. another uh, conduit. Uh, and this, this pipe, I think the temperature of the, the fluid in there is like 50 degrees. So it's not particularly hot. But uh, it's enough that uh, you have another heat transfer thing at the building, which is quite small. And uh, then using that system, you can heat water and space in the building. Really? Uh, yeah. Wow. And, and this, is, this is ultimately totally renewable energy. I mean, this is... Yeah. Um, and what's kind of interesting about it is that uh, when the demand, say, for hot water is high, our sewers running hot. 
Yeah. <laughs> what I mean by that is, say, say if everyone started to have to have have a shower at the same time, the, the sewer actually is pretty warm because of all that uh, hot shower water. Right. Okay, that makes sense. And so we can actually pump our ability to pump it back is actually higher. <laughs> Whereas, you know, when the demand for hot water is low, uh, we have less heat in the water. Less heat. So. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Vancouver's landfill. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah. So the only operating landfill in our region is owned by the city of Vancouver and it's located in Delta, uh, near Burns Bog. Okay. And so we, so it's in Delta, but we own it as Vancouver. The city, right? city, so of, city of Vancouver, Vancouver does. It. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's sometimes it's not great to own these things because <laughs> with with ownership becomes the obligation to maintain and you know steward it uh, yeah. uh, in in a kind of environmental and safe way. So that comes with a lot of obligation. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's something we manage and we receive this region's waste. It's like many of the the budget items for engineering. Like when you look at it, about eighty percent of our budget is user fee paid. So. Um, on the revenue side. Yeah, well, so the, neighborhood the, energy utility is a good example. Uh, residents of Vancouver don't pay for that system. Right. Users of the energy do. I see. Uh, same with the landfill. Uh, there's no taxpayer burden due to the landfill. Uh, but if you're bringing things to the landfill, you'll pay to tip the, the you know, it's called a tipping T- fee. Tipping fee, yeah. Yeah, so we receive waste and charge for it. Yeah. Same with the water system. Right. Uh, it's paid for by the users of the okay, water so system. Okay, so 80%. 80% of uh, the engineering budget is, it's money that is, it's in its own cycle. Yeah, if you know sure. what I mean? Like yep. the only the only way I could yeah. raise money for the water system is to raise water rates. Right. So people will have to pay more for water. Yeah. Okay, well, that's, <laughs> yeah. That's, so, that's helpful though for us to understand that, yeah. that, you know, that we're not subsidizing all of these so the, uh, your taxes country. really cover the roads, yeah. uh, the transportation system, the street lighting, and a bit of the stormwater yeah. okay. uh, management. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, and street sanitation, street cleaning, also a big one. That's st- a street big cleaning, one. Is, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's such a high priority for yeah. residents. Um, but street cleaning happens like on a daily basis in much, much of the downtown. Okay. Uh, where we have chronic cleanliness issues. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, street flushers. Uh, in the downtown east side or okay. a, a daily occurrence. Yeah. Uh, and the, the the more trafficked areas of the city just generally get more, get more attention. Yeah. yeah Business districts across the city get more attention. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, there's going to be a new uh, skating rink at where it was what is currently known as the Plaza Nations. Mm-hmm. And, and I had the pleasure of taking my children when they were quite a bit younger to the open outdoor ice rink at... Uh, uh, Robson Center, Robson Place, or I guess. Yeah, Robson Square. Uh, Robson yeah. Square, thank you. Um, can you fill us in a little bit about what's happening in development down in Plaza Nations and this this new ice rink and also the energy that's going to be used from it? Yeah, so uh, there's it's a new community center. It'll be a new daycare, a new ice rink. So there's a lot of uh, new plaza, new waterfront walkway. So this is pretty typical of these big waterfront developments that you do get a lot of... Um, public amenities that kind of come with the with the density uh and the the uh, skating rink is kind of unusual like it's not something we normally get from a developer uh i think the inspiration was the proximity of the canucks and that that okay. could be a training facility for them yeah um, but yeah in terms of the energy the the marvelous thing about uh skating rink is that it's a huge source of heat right uh, because to to cool the water to create the ice you have a lot of waste heat 
And so uh, for a district energy system like ours, that's like tapping into a bit of a gold mine, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so you don't have to like search too Just hard. Just like your for- Olympic Village example, you can recapture and repurpose that heat to help heat other nearby yes, buildings. Yes, one of our buildings connected uh, in the system is Mountain Equipment Co-op, the, the retail store on 2nd Avenue. And uh, and they they tend to need cooling, so they generally contribute heat to the system. And wow. uh, yeah, so, so what's nice about a district energy system is you have heat sources in places, places that need heat and places that have excess heat and the system just moves the heat around. Yeah. And so the more idea. buildings you have connected, the more it works. You so know? Be, yeah. So before the before the Olympics, did we have any district energy system or was that uh, the very first creation? Not, not really, not in the scale, that, not yeah. the way we're doing this one. The, yeah. the downtown has a really significant uh, energy system uh, called Creative Energy, uh, which is a steam heat system. Uh, and there's 200 office buildings. This one's probably connected to it. Wow. And uh, and there that plant is over at uh, Beattie and Georgia. Yeah. It's a big blue building with the big stacks. And yeah. they use uh, natural gas to heat steam to, to heat all these buildings. But it doesn't it doesn't have the ability to take heat. Okay. Uh, and so um, you'll be interesting to that. Excuse me. That's a private um, a private entity privately operated entity and so it'll be interesting to see if they switch to a system like ours which is far uh, more efficient more efficient yeah Yeah. i know that you've i said as in the introduction you've traveled around the world and i believe one of your favorite cities in the world is paris Mm -hmm. Um, what is it about the city of paris that you like so much and what are a few ideas that you'd love to see implemented here in vancouver that's uh sort of entrenched in the city of paris uh, I don't even know where to start when I say, <laughs> what do I like about the city of Paris? Yeah. The attention to the public realm is really, really quite impressive. Yeah. Uh, when I read this book that explained a little bit of it, it was like how Paris, the book's called How Paris Became Paris. Um, but uh, this notion that they would create this beautiful bridge, this very first bridge, Pont de Neuve. Yeah. Very, it, but it did this thing which no one had ever done before. They had created curbs yeah. so that the, uh, you know, the wheels of the horse and buggy uh, wouldn't be able to go over it. And it separated the people walking from the, the, to the, bag, the bag. And so they created the first sidewalks. Right. right? And, uh, and then they not only made them nice, like nice protected ones, but big bays where you can kind of look out and you can look over the, the river and look at the, the Louvre and, yeah. and everything. And they created such a great space that everyone wanted to kind of promenade there. Even the wealthy, right. which is uh, created this this social mixing that never happened before, where people don't know each other, which led to fashion, which led to led to department stores, led to like tons tons of firsts. Yeah. On the municipal side, uh, they creating these spaces. They suddenly needed lights. You know, the first first city to implement public street lights. Yeah. Uh, first city to trial uh, public transit. You know, with with horse and buggy. You know, and things like that. Wow. So uh, a, a sewer system, which is unimaginably effective, like they have a sewer museum. You can go. You could go there and you enter through a manhole. Really, it's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, better than videos of a, of a sewer system. You can yeah. walk on these elevated walkways, and it's all there, right? Really? Uh, yeah, because it's so big. It's like yeah. these pipes are so big. Uh, their city's quite flat. 
So yes. they, they have a lot of issues with accumulation, yeah. uh, but they devise these systems to scrape the bottom of all this accumulation. Um, an idea that I, like, there's so many ideas that you would yeah. take from there. But, of course, like, even the, they were the first to really do public bike share in a big way. Okay. In its modern incarnation, right? You know, yeah. and we're here, we are way late to the table on that. Yeah. Great system, though. Yeah. We're operating really well in Vancouver. But even, like, they, they have two types of water system, which, again, makes me think about, like, water conservation. And they have the municipal water supply and then the potable water supply. Okay. And, uh, and what's the difference, just in layman's terms? Uh, the municipal water supply, you don't drink it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's the key difference. That's the only thing. Yeah. But uh, when you think about how many uses of water we have where it doesn't involve drinking, okay. like flushing the streets or yeah. you know, putting out fires yeah. or irrigating plants and yeah. things like that. Yeah, watering plants. There's, we have some excess water uh, coming out of projects like Oak Ridge because they have really high groundwater flow. Okay. And you could see how... Um, we could start a system like that, right. you know, like a, a non-potable water system, yeah. uh, which like golf courses and parks and stuff like that could tap sure. into. Uh, and they wouldn't put pressure on our reservoirs, you know, right. and, 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 and at time, anyways, it's just, uh, yeah. I think it's a really important point and it's a very interesting one. Like all of Vancouver's water is potable. Yeah. Is that a fair statement? It is. I mean, whether you're drinking it out of your tap, like we are. It, that same water is being used to water to, lawns, water lawns, <laughs> right? And yeah. uh, and in the summer, the number one use for water is watering lawns. Lawns, yeah. Wow. And like this teeny, teeny, teeny fraction is actually consumed for drinking. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. I know it's a lot of treatment for water that you just throw around or wash your car it with, is. or yeah, like hose down the driveway. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy if you think about it. Going beyond Paris and to to kind of wrap this up. Um, I love I love your uh, your passion for this lawn, and obviously we're really lucky to have a guy like you in in the seat because um, all your years' experience. But when you've traveled around the world, is there any one thing that if you could put on a wish list uh, of like I would love to see Vancouver have this? Putting it in the context of like an engineering lens, right? When it comes to like whether it's sewer, water, uh, you know, public public works. What's kind of one thing at top of mind for you? Well, the the one thing that I think is the public space piece. Okay. Uh, and the, I have a division which is public space and street use. Yeah. Uh, as as a division, it exploded during the pandemic. You know, our and are we talking about like parks? Is that what we're talking about? What are we talking uh, about? No, public it's, spaces. So it's it's all the the use of the street, okay. which is uh, for you things not like moving vehicles, not moving water, not moving. So it's the, it's the whole notion of converting a street to a plaza okay. or outdoor so, seating for a restaurant. So some of these, or, uh, so for example, I live up near West Point Gray in 10th Avenue Village and they've blocked off a part of a street that used to be able to drive through. Yeah. Some barriers there. Now they've got benches out yeah. for people to sit. And you see now people sitting yeah. and eating lunches and stuff. Is that what we're talking about? Yes. Okay. And and during the like in the lead up to the Olympics, we had tried to get a few of these to happen because rather than acquiring space for parkland or a plaza, especially in these business districts, where really really most of them are in need of a space like that, which they could program for events and things like that. Um, uh, we had very little interest or uptake in in those kind of programs, but then the pandemic hit, mm -hmm. 
And I think there was a little bit less concern about the loss of the parking spaces and a much bigger concern about being outside and being able to meet with friends in a safe place, you know, because outside your yeah. bubble, you couldn't bring people into your house. So right. you'd meet at a picnic table in one of these plazas. For the restaurants, of course, they repurposed the parking spaces into outdoor seating for their restaurant. Um, and, and all of those uses, I just see, you know, we went from one uh, trial to like 14 uh, plazas yeah. across the city yeah. and most of them very successful and you know worthy of being converted into a permanent kind of plaza space yeah. I see um, many many cities around the world especially in Europe um, where they've created these really wonderful places to be yes. like just they're, they're this yeah. and sometimes they just go on and on and flow from one space to the other to that's the other. amazing isn't it and uh, we don't have many opportunities like that yeah. you know where you don't have to worry about cars and yeah. you know like you can really just kind of hear the sounds of footsteps and yeah. voices and voices and <laughs> buskers playing music yeah, and right. uh you know uh, patios with people having drinks i love it it's great that's a good that's a good vision well i, I agree i think spent having spent time in europe myself like lived over there uh twice in my earlier life you're absolutely right i think there's some great spots to wrap this up but i'd be curious to know if people listening to this conversation today want to get involved in some way, like what what are you are what what can what are you appealing to you know citizens of Vancouver? What can they do to get involved in a helpful way? Um, well, I, I think that um, what I would ask uh, everyone is to to think about their city as something you have control over. Um, because you have a lot of control over it. And uh, the opportunities to connect with us, the easiest ones are Van Connect. If you have the app on your phone, uh, that's a really easy to way, way to put in a service request, whatever it is. Yeah. And it could be a pothole, or it could be a burnt out light, or, or whatever. Um, without um, you telling us that, we don't know that it's occurred. Often, like this is a very big city with thousands of kilometers of street out there yeah. where we're not attending daily, yeah. you know, and or we're not there at night. And so we don't know that the light's not working and things like that. How many people work under the engineering department of City of Vancouver? Uh, we got about 2,200 employees. And how, much, how many of those are sort of so-called out in the field? Uh, the majority of them. Yeah, so uh, probably 1,800 yeah. or so, so are kind of out there in the field. Yeah. People working through the tough weather. Well, this has been a great conversation today. So the, the, the moral of the story is download the Connect, uh, Van Connect app. I use it uh, myself a lot, Lon, so I can speak to that uh, firsthand. It's a great app. Uh, Lon LeClaire, General Manager for Engineering Services at the City of Vancouver. This has been a great conversation today. Thank you for all the work and all the people that are helping uh, our city function every day, all your 2,300 employees in your department, and for coming on to Coastal Front today. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank yeah. you. Yeah.